Radio Mano Papachango. Sapiens. Sorry, I've been away for a while. Took a couple days, went up to um, the Alabama Hills, which are not in Alabama. They're uh, about three hours north of LA in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Really beautiful. Hung out there uh, with some friends for a night, and then we uh, cruised over into the White Mountains across the 395. If you live in California, you always put the word the before a highway. The 101, the 5, the 405, and the 395. It's a California thing. Anyway, uh, up in those mountains, we were at 11,000 feet checking out the, uh, what are they called? The bristlecone pines, which are arguably the oldest living things on planet Earth that are known to science. 4,500 years old, I think, maybe pushing 5,000 very fucking old trees, and they look like they're all about to die. They're just gnarly way up there. They they can only live in a very specific, I think it has to be a south-facing slope uh, at a very high altitude, certain kind of soil composition, very particular uh, limited range but those suckers hold on let me tell you interesting isn't it that something the oldest lived thing is in one of the harshest possible environments must be some sort of metaphor there uh it makes me think about the only thing that's been demonstrated to increase lifespan in mammals across the board, I believe in every mammal it's been tested in, is calorie restriction. And, uh, yeah, so there's a certain uh, tonic, beneficial effect of uh, not getting what you want, just what you need, as the Rolling Stones say. Lots of things to tell you about. Uh, First of all, my great friend Kyle Tierman, uh, he does a thing on his podcast where he invites people to record a little voice memo, 20 seconds or so, just a shout out from wherever they are in the world. And uh, he plays uh, one of those at the beginning of each episode. Really cool thing. Uh, So I'm going to steal that idea from him. Uh, I steal a lot of things from him. I've got half his wardrobe uh, at this point. Uh, (laughs) He he hooks me up with the, uh, the discount Patagonia wear. So if you see me wearing Patagonia, it's thanks to Kyle. Um, Anyway, uh, if you make an MP3 just with your phone and just uh, email it off to me at ChristopherAssistant at gmail.com, I will play that at the beginning of an episode. So just tell me where you are, what you're doing. Uh, You know, if you're driving a FedEx truck in Utah, that's cool. Just tell me what you see out the windshield. Tell me tell me where you where you're going, where you were. If you're sitting on a beach in Thailand, if you're in Norway, shoveling the snow, whatever you're doing, record a little little uh, MP3 and send it off to me and maybe I'll play it. 
Thanks. I like that, that sort of community building thing. All right. What else do I want to tell you about? My friend Laura Austin is doing a really cool project. She's driving around the country, the United States, two-month trip, uh, partially sponsored by Airstream. They hooked her up with their newest um, trailer design, sort of a, a minimal minimalist trailer. She's towing it in the back of her car. And she's doing this project where she's interviewing people who uh, she's, she's looking for what it is that holds us together and the things that we have in common because so much of what's going on in the United States right now is about what separates us and what pulls us apart. So she's trying to, to address that in her own work. She's a photographer and a writer. She's a damn good photographer too. Um, anyway, the, uh, the idea of the project is called I Am Human and uh, it's a series of photos and just short sort of conversations that she'll have with people. So if you or someone you know you think might be an interesting uh, person to to be involved with this, write to Laura at IamHumanSeries at gmail.com. That's IamHumanSeries at gmail.com. I think right now she's in Tennessee headed toward New Orleans. She's coming across the southwest up the west coast and then curling across the north part of the country through montana i believe michigan minnesota michigan wisconsin and heading back toward ohio where she'll be in about two months where she has to drop off the airstream so if you're on that route just anywhere uh southwest west coast and the north part of the country between Washington and Ohio, and uh, you think somebody would make a good interview, write to her. She's looking for people who are likely to be misunderstood. Um, You know, think about eh, all of us are misunderstood, but some of us more than others. Sex workers, uh, people are just out of prison, maybe prison wardens, maybe uh, someone with mental illness, someone with disabilities, uh, you know, someone who... You see them walking down the street and you think you know their story, but really what you see on the surface isn't the story. She wants to get at those people and, and show us a little bit of what the real story is. So that's the I Am Human series at gmail.com. I am human. Okay. What else did I want to tell you? Uh, I've seen a bunch of really interesting movies recently. The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. Fascinating really interesting documentary about Gary Shandling, who even among comedians was, I think, revered as being sort of, uh, how can I say this? Like the, the prototype, the, he, he sort of, the things that many comedians have in common, he sort of had it to a much deeper degree the intelligence, the seeking, the neurosis, the, the, the sort of troubled relationship with success and ambition and very, very thoughtful guy. It's done by Judd Apatow, who uh, Gary sort of groomed and, and um, took him on as a protege. And uh, it was really very beautiful if you're interested in humor and intelligence and uh and all those issues it's really worth watching 
Uh, what else have I seen? I saw The Post the other night, the Steven Spielberg movie uh, about uh, Watergate. Well, really about the Pentagon Papers. Interesting, but very sort of Hollywood. Um, I found it to be like it was constantly telling, reminding you that it's a movie. And and it's sort of the way the acting and the everything just seemed overdone and self-consciously cinematic. I know it's intentional and it's he's Spielberg's making references to Citizen Kane uh, and the sort of grand tradition of movies about media moguls and, uh, you know, clash between power at the upper echelons and and it's interesting to see he didn't shy away from the theme of how the Vietnam War was killing middle class and poor men American men primarily and of course everybody in Vietnam but the decisions were being made by people who went to cocktail parties together the Kennedys and the Grahams and uh, Robert Strange, McNamara, and the whole sort of upper class Washington elite. And the lies that they told that were exposed in the Pentagon Papers, you can sort of see as, I think an argument could be made, that the release of the Pentagon Papers broke the trust that common people had in the government since World War II. And and I don't know what was happening before World War II. Uh, I mean, in terms of the Depression, I think maybe there was a lot of distrust there. But I think from World War II until the early 70s, late 60s, there was a sense that even though mistakes were certainly made, the government had our best interests at heart. And that it was worthwhile to sacrifice for your country because your country was looking out for you. And uh, I think that that trust was broken when it was revealed that a series of presidents had been lying about to the public about what was really going on in Vietnam and covering up a disaster and sending hundreds of thousands of soldiers over there well after they knew that the war was unwinnable and tens of thousands of them were dying for absolutely no purpose whatsoever other than to save the United States the embarrassment of admitting that it was a fuck-up and getting out. And uh, you can look at where the United States is now as a late point along that path, that that fork in the road that happened with the release of the Pentagon Papers. Because, you know, how could we elect someone, how could 46% of voting Americans vote for someone like Donald Trump if they didn't already believe that the government was the problem? And not long after that, Ronald Reagan came in and was making that argument, and we've seen a continuation of that right up till now, where the whole the whole project is just collapsing on itself because there's no legitimacy. 
Nobody on either side of the political spectrum really believes in the political process in this country. So that's a bad sign. Anyway, that, that's, uh, that was the post. And then last night I saw a film called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which I highly, highly recommend. That's the best film I've seen in a long time. It's uh, about the, the professor who invented Wonder Woman. He also, by the way, I didn't know this till I saw the film, invented the lie detector machine. And uh, if the film is to be believed, the lie detector machine had a very interesting role in the development of his personal life. I won't go into it more than that. But I will say that uh, if you get a chance to check out the film, I think you'll find that it's that rare film that treats unconventional sexual romantic situations with intelligence and maturity and compassion rather than the typical, you know, somebody broke a rule, they have to die, their lives must be destroyed, which is what happens in almost all other films. So I thought this was uh, refreshingly nuanced and, and really decent and intelligent. So that's Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Speaking of wonderful women i've been talking for 12 and a half minutes and i haven't even told you who the guest is this week alexandra snow is well she came to my attention because she's friends with uh sierra lynch uh who has been on the podcast uh they were both at burning man last year when i was there and i think that's the first time i met alexandra she's been on kyle tierman's podcast She's um, super smart, really interesting woman. She, I guess, I, my first description of her would be a dominatrix, but she describes herself as an adventure, professional adventure seeker and authenticity coach. <laughs> and she's not, she's being funny. She's not full of bullshit. She's really down to earth and very smart and very badass in the best way. I think you'll agree. She and I talk about some real stuff, and uh, she doesn't shy away from it. She she's she's cool. I like her a lot. We hung out here in Topanga a couple of weeks ago, and uh, so I'm really happy to be bringing this to you. All right, and one last thing before I get into I transfer over to the conversation. I'm finishing up this uh Civilized to Death manuscript and I've been going through editing it and I have there's there's this key little detail that I haven't quite figured out. So while I have your attention, maybe I'll ask for your help with this. If you read Sex at Dawn, you'll remember that that book is structured as sort of a response to what Casilda and I call the standard narrative of human sexual evolution. In short, the standard narrative. Standard narrative was that humans evolved to be monogamous and men and women evolved in nuclear families and yada, yada, yada. So we're sort of saying, okay, that's what conventional mainstream science argues and has argued for a long time. And that's what we're sort of arguing against here. Civilized to Death has a similar structure where I'm saying, okay, here's the story you've been told about civilization. 
that civilization is this wonderful thing that came along and gave us surpluses and that resulted in art and culture and all the sophisticated, wonderful, civilized stuff. And anyone who lived outside of civilization was a barbarian and living this Hobbesian nightmare where life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, it turns out neither one of those things is true. It's not true that uncivilized or pre-civilized or non-civilized people's lives were unmitigated suffering and disaster and they all died when they were 30. You guys have heard me rant about that many times. And it's also not true that civilization was such a fucking gift. In fact, people were less healthy. They, they were less happy. They were more likely to die in war and famine and disease and all sorts of things. And the cost of civilization in terms of the colonialism and slavery and destruction of the planet and all that are virtually incalculable. Anyway, so the book is arguing against this standard mainstream paradigm or narrative of the way Western civilization should be understood, right? And I've been calling it in the book the the narrative of civilizational superiority, or NCS for short, but that just feels wordy and it doesn't feel right. And in an earlier version, I called it the standard origin story, SOS for short, but that's in kind of cute and doesn't quite work. So if you think of something that make sense that seems like a better way to summarize what it is I'm arguing against this understanding that everyone has that we're so lucky to be living in civilization because it's such an improvement over living in you know the state of nature red in tooth and claw if you have a, a quick and easy acronym for that or phrase for that let me know I would love to have it and you can either do that through my website, thatchrisryan.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see a contact button under Chris. Or you can uh, send that to the email I mentioned earlier, which was christopherassistant at gmail.com. I'll shut the fuck up now. That's been 18 minutes. Thank you to all of you who support the podcast on patreon.com. It's wonderful. It buys me diesel when I go out anthropologizing. It pays for the computer. It pays for the hosting. It keeps the lights on. I really appreciate it. Uh, also, those of you who go through my link to Amazon in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., thank you very much for doing that. Uh, anything, a small percentage of whatever you spend there comes to us, which is very cool. Uh, what else can I say? No commercial. I'm just going to play a song now, and it's a song by the great Carsey Blanton, which is called Vim and Vigor. I really like the song. It's from her last uh, CD, which is called So Ferocious. It just seemed like an appropriate song for this episode of the podcast. You'll hear some like distortion. That's in the song. Don't worry about your speakers, your headphones, or whatever. That's part of the song, I guess. They decided to, they made that artistic decision. So there's a little of that. Anyway, this is Carsey Blanton, Vim and Vigor. Hope things are going great for you out there.
Topanga with a woman we're going to call Alexandra Snow. Uh, that, that's her professional name. And you, before I turned on the mic, I asked you, you know, what I, how I should introduce you, and you started going through a litany of interesting <laughs> phrases. So I, I wanted to get the mics on. So, uh, adventure seeker was that one of them? Yeah, I, w- I would say that I'm a professional adventure seeker and a professional authenticity coach. <laughs> I think that's my. I think I think that's, that's what I'd really like to call myself. But uh-huh. um, uh, the world knows me as a uh, fetish video producer, a professional dominatrix, uh, sex educator. Um, uh, that's probably the, the three the three big ones. And I am also a, uh, a I own my first startup as of this year, doing uh, software development, also for the adult industry. Ah, okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. So let's go back to the beginning. Professional adventure seeker. Mm-hmm. So that means somehow you've managed to get paid to seek adventure? Correct. Mm. Um, I, I would like to think that uh, the, the ability to make your own videos and, and be your own kind of, um, you know, obviously to be, to be your own producer allowed me to um, find ways that I could travel to different, different countries and somehow, you know, get footage that, that allowed me to, you know, 
basically do tax write-offs for it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd I, love to be there for that audit. Uh, yeah, well, so I like I got really okay. into droning in the Two last. Two whips, a bullwhip, and shackles, and a drone. Write it off and a drone. Yeah, so I got, really got really into doing um, to, to droning this year, and we went to did a bunch of really beautiful stuff in Iceland. Did some uh, awesome stuff in Peru. I got to, we did some awesome black ops droning of Machu Picchu. Really? Oh yeah, yeah that was a wow. uh, that was pretty cool. Um, and and to be fair, like the 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 videos that I that I do when I'm traveling are not. Are, don't really make enough to sustain the actual trips, but they're certainly enough to make the trips tax deductible. Right. Um, but everything I want to do in my life, I, I literally try to make enough money to support the adventures. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that works. And so, uh, are you using the drone? Now, these are erotic videos. Uh, some of them aren't. Some of them aren't. Yeah. But yes, we we started doing uh, uh, drone drone videos of, you know, like uh, we did like bondage in white sands, you know, in in San Jose, Mexico and um, like other like creative stuff out in the, the, you know, the sides of mountains in Iceland. Wow. Okay. So you've got, I mean, you're flogging somebody and the drone is like zeroing in from a thousand feet up in the sky or something? Yeah, you got it. Most of the stuff that I do is solo. um, And so, you know, the particular Iceland trip, it was just me and me and my partner who flew the the drone. Um, But when I have, I have access to to other models or, you know, to to other people to play with and that I'll do have more people in them too. Right. Wow. But I, like I did, did like crazy ones where I'm uh, I'm the queen of a an alien planet, and we have the drone come in as if it's a, a spaceship crash landing, and you know it, it turns out to be like, and I'm talking to the camera as if it's the you know the the astronaut who's come to try to you know answer a rescue beacon, and it's it's fake and it's me, and I'm going to harvest his DNA, and mm. you know all kinds of it's, it's literally whatever whatever my you know oh, perverted brain can concoct. So you're, you're you're already tapping into one of my oldest deepest fantasies, right? there oh yeah yeah i grew up watching star trek the original with kirk and spock and those guys and i don't know how old i was i must have been you know 70 years old when i saw uh kirk hooking up with this green woman oh yeah from some other planet yep and i was like yeah yeah that could be my life that's my dude right there that's what i want to be i want to be like that intrepid traveler who you know not only goes to the country, but like explores it from that very intimate angle. Absolutely, well. I, you know, not rape and pillage. I never had like a Viking thing. No, but like intimately explore it. But like yeah. she, you know, like I'm exotic to her. She's exotic to me. You know, you've met my wife. I'm into exotic. Women. A- a- absolutely, I'm, I'm totally into that too. I mean, I'm, I'm, she's I'm not an, green, but she's pretty exotic. She is pretty exotic. <laughs> I, I'm pretty much an epic level nerd. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and and I'm a huge Trek fan. In fact, I, I, one of the things I can't wait to do is to go home and catch up on the latest Star Trek. Have um, you seen the first episode of this season of Black Mirror? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Which is all Star Trek. Yes, I know. Oh, it's crazy. It's also good. I, I love this is like this resurgence of nerd culture mm. and now now that it's become you know acceptable and on almost you know like. Um, like desirable what it used to be that, yeah that it's almost really, alpha now yeah I know it's really cool so you did you grow up as a nerd were you a nerdy high school girl I was a nerdy everything um, I 
uh, it's kind of funny in, in inside my industry there's this kind of like mean girls-esque um archetype that we're supposed to to look into as if our our, our you know younger days were spent being like the the popular mean cheerleader girl and that was mm. the farthest thing from from what i was mm. you know i was the i was super over over committed doing you know double ap classes and mm. you know like on a fast track to to go to mit and and I could not have cared less about any of the popularity things. I was just busy doing nerdy stuff. But yeah, of course. I mean, I played I played D and D and played Magic the Gathering, and um, which, by the way, my one of my best friends is Sierra Lynch. You know who you, you get to interview before, and she's got me into back into playing Magic the Gathering this year. And talk about like blast from the past. But, mm. Like literally every nerdy thing, every every like playing video games and like LARPing and you know play testing for White Wolf and you know like literally whatever I get my hands on silly stuff so all right so you're on track to go to mit did mm. you go to mit i didn't uh i I, I i unfortunately had a uh i'm gonna go into the sword details but i unfortunately had a, a parent who was in active addiction uh-huh. and uh i because of of the situations around being an emancipated minor um uh-huh. had my unfortunately my my mother um tried to blackmail me for my scholar my college scholarship and uh it you know, being being a headstrong, you know, sixteen year old girl because I graduated early, I I said, well, go fuck yourself. Basically, and by the time I turn eighteen, I'll just get a scholarship again myself. And by the time I turned eighteen, I was doing something else. Um, I'm kind of actually kind of glad I didn't because I ended up studying sexual behavior psychology at Johns Hopkins and like you know getting background in, in you know in business and in IT and mostly and obviously in psychology. Um, and my life is absolutely wonderful i don't i think if i'd gone to mit i would have had a very different life would you have done like computer science or something is that what you were looking at? i was going into genetic engineering actually oh yeah absolutely what, what was the interest there you just uh, thought that was something that was going to explode in your lifetime no act to be fair um i was obsessed with making categators I, what's a, what's a category? So and I learned, you know, in whatever my, my high school years, that um, you know, that cats and alligators have the same number of chromosomes. I had like developed this idea that I could somehow uh-huh. I could somehow splice them together. We're, we're, a furry, cute alligator. Well, I was more thinking about you know a, a, like an army of uh, of creatures that I could somehow sell to other countries and and you know, like, I mean like I, I had an entire plan. And I, funny thing so is, you were an evil nerd. You... I was. I was. I've, I've always been a super villain. I just try to be a oh, you know okay. most. A, a mostly fair supervillain, like, you know, chaotic, neutral supervillain. Yeah, I can relate to that. I, I sort of think of myself as a friendly Charles Manson. <laughs> That's perfect. You know, the, keep the drugs and the sex, but lose the killing. Yep, absolutely. You know, I think I, I can roll around in my van picking up home, you know, runaways. and But I'll be the nice, the nice guy. <laughs> right, you know? right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so where, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up all over the place. Um, I'm originally born in Texas, but I grew up. Uh, I lived in 13 states before I uh, mm. before I moved out of the Carolinas. Mostly, mostly like in the Deep South um, uh-huh. and in like the Eastern Seaboard. But you uh, don't have the accent. Uh, no, I, I did a lot of theater, and and I talked to a camera for a living, so I I promptly got rid of any accent if there was one. But no, mm. I don't think I ever did. Um, I think my my grandmother was pretty was pretty insistent on me speaking proper English. Right. Yeah. Well, I can relate to that. I lived in uh, twenty houses before I got out of high 20? school. Twenty. Wow. Different states too, or just some stay- different states. Not as many as you, but most 
the, I mean, different school districts within mm. the same state. So I had that same kind of disruption and three different high schools. So you probably moved every six months as well, right? Well, it wasn't uh, that frequent. There were, there were periods of like, there was a five year period where we stayed in one place and then we moved three times in two years. And oh, wow. you know, then, um, yeah, no, it was, uh, and it wasn't like my dad was in the military or anything. It yeah. That's always just, a question I get too. Like, was your dad in the military? Nope. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Just like strangely transient lifestyle, right? Yeah, just, you know, changing jobs and career paths and then getting promoted to the regional headquarters and, right. you know, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's an interesting way to grow up. You become very uh, sort of self-sufficient. Incredibly, and, and from an early age. Do you think, though, that it, it gave you a different um, skill set to be able to make to make friends rapidly or to at least to try to connect connect with people? Because you're, it, cause if you didn't think you are going to stay with those friends, you, you know, you try to invest in what you can get and then, you know, kind of hope for the best. Yeah. And my sister and I, my sister's four years younger than I am. And she and I, I think approached it from, we took two different approaches. She tried to integrate herself very quickly into each social world. Mm -hmm. So for example, when we, my parents moved to Jacksonville, Florida, she started speaking with a Jacksonville accent within a month. Oh, wow. Um, and different places she, she would, uh, adopt the accent very quickly, whereas I never adopted any accent. And I think that played out socially as well. Like my response to it was to be, uh, autonomous, mm-hmm. whereas her response to it was to try to like find friends and quickly. Fit in and, and yeah. I think part of that's being a, a girl and, sure. um, and I was older, so maybe I was uh, at a stage of life where I could sort of manage that. But I got used to like, yeah, okay, I'm going to eat alone in the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, you know, who cares? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean I'm a loser. It doesn't right. mean there's anything wrong with me. I'm just a new kid. And, uh, and so I got used to that, and that became part of my personality. For a while in my teens, uh, probably into well, I remember exactly when that period ended but my emotional defense was to be really pedantic mm. I, I completely completely understand <laughs> <laughs> like hey I'm smarter than all of you so yep. who gives yep. a fuck exactly you know? right uh yeah and then luckily that peeled away because I shudder to think what life would have been like you know encased in that rigid ego mm-hmm. um but yeah that that's how I dealt with it through high school yeah, I, I completely, completely see what that, yeah. what that would look like. Yeah. Although I, I, I've often wondered um, if the the the, pel- the path toward um, early self advocacy kind of accelerates, um, you know, your your life choices because you know you, you spend you spend your twenties trying to um, you know distance yourself from what society and you know what what your parents and every other aspect of your socialization you know wants you to be and somehow try to decide you know that you know now you you know you can be the architect of your own life now you are the you know the person who, who drives the boat um, and I feel like it when when that happens prior to your 20s your 20s become something else entirely mm-hmm. right and uh, I feel like you know obviously not all humans follow the, the same the same path um, but uh, everyone I've known who became highly highly uh, self sufficient when they're you know very young became motivated to do bigger things um, in their twenties and use that, that like you know never ending amount of of 
like what we feel like is energy that quickly evaporates as you get older. Right? <laughs> Tell me about oh, it. Right? Um, to, to, to feel like, you know, oh, I'm going to yeah. go, I'm going to, I'm going to go, go, you know, carve out some, some piece of the world for yourself. Mm. Um, of course, that's a whole lot of ego too. I feel like you don't really get away from your ego and, and until either the world knocks you on your head or you do an awful lot of hallucinogens. That's what I, that was my route. <laughs> yep. No, not, and, not, and that's not, what I was going to say. Absolutely. That's where the ego yep. ended when I was in Alaska and, I mean, it wasn't just hallucinogens, but that was a time in my life when I had been introduced to hallucinogens and I took to them like a duck to water. And then I hitchhiked from the university where I was like star student winning all the awards and all that shit. I took a year off and hitchhiked to Alaska. Oh, wow. And I had all these adventures and people listening to this podcast have heard this story before. But, um, you know, briefly, I had a bunch of adventures, including going to prison and um, just like getting shot at and working in this cannery and all, all sorts of stuff happened. And I sort of looked at my life and realized what a pedantic dick I was mm -hmm. and how uh, incredibly friendly people were being to me despite my arrogance. And That's I, always a shock. Yeah. I mean, really, they, they sort of won me over with their kindness and mm -hmm. generosity and and I looked at myself and the track I was on and my friends back at school who were mostly professors and how brittle and unforgiving and judgmental they were. And I was like, fuck, I don't want to really be like them. I mean, I love them. They're my friends. They're really kind to me. But if any of these people stumbled into their world they'd be ridiculed and rejected. Mm -hmm. And here I am stumbling into this world and I'm welcomed and protected and, you know, Accepted, taken home yeah. for dinner and given a place to sleep. And, you know, it's like, wow, who, who do I want to grow up to be more like here? Mm, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah, that was a big, a big moment where I, I sort of recognized that being smarter and in air quotes, because intelligence is so fluid and immeasurable mm -hmm. anyway. That, that there's a wisdom way more important than just being intellectually adept, you know. And in fact, in fact I mean, the older I, I get and the, the, the farther away that I've moved from academia, the more I, I encounter people who's, who, who believe so strongly in their, their intellectualism and don't realize how much it holds them back, you know, like, yeah. I mean, in, in, in ways that are, that are sometimes mind-numbing about it, Um my, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm polyamorous and I have multiple partners. And one of my partners is uh, Thad Roberts. He's a um, um, physicist. He's also, he's also the, the, the guy you probably know as um, uh, having stolen the moon rocks from NASA to impress a girl. You know, many years ago. <laughs> I hadn't heard about that. Were uh, you the girl? Uh, no, I wasn't the girl. You would have been impressed, though. Uh, no, he wouldn't have gotten caught if it had been me. Because <laughs> um, you would have been assisting in the heist? He, exactly. Uh, I, I'd have made sure that had gone over well. Right. Um, you know, and he, and, and he was he was really, really young. In fact, I just, just helped him um, release the, his book about having gone to prison. Or sorry, he's written two books. One's about going to jail. Another one's about going to prison. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm sure how you've had this experience is that most people don't know that there's a difference. Mm. Right. But anyway, um, you know, f like interacting with the, the like the higher in science world, um, you you realize that that so many people, for as much as they understand, as much as they know, and, and has as far reaching as they they try to get, is that they are not very connected with the rest of the world, not very connected with other humans. And you know, like we talk about emotional intelligence, um, it's kind of being the currency that we need. But 
I, I just go, God, you're missing out on so much. Just so, so much of your human experience is lacking. And, you know, I, I feel like I start to run out of energy to, to teach that lesson to each individual person. And I start to go, okay, well, who's ready for it? Well, let me, let me take you there if you're, if you're already, already to the threshold. Yeah, I think that's a big lesson that comes with age is, is learning to only sort of water plants that are that want to be watered and that are I love that analogy I'm, gonna, up, you know. I'm, I'm stealing that you're never yeah, getting it back yeah. <laughs> you know, while you were talking I thought of another analogy that, that I've, occurs to me over and over again it's like the brighter your flashlight is the less you can see in the darkness absolutely you know? and, and the more I, it blinds you yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and I think you know I have a, I have a buddy who's a magician uh, in addition to other things he's a tattoo artist and He's probably one of the highest IQ people I've ever met. His <laughs> name's Voodoo. Um, I think I meet this guy already. <laughs> oh, he's he's amazing. He's he's this big, burly kind of hell's angel looking dude with yeah. tats all over his body and uh, loud. He, he kind of reminds me of um, uh, Penn and Teller. You know the big dude. I oh yeah, which, yeah, Whether he's Penn or Teller, but uh, Pen, uh, yeah, that's Pen, Gillette. Penn Penn Gillette. Gillette yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like him. He's yeah. like. Ah, rah, rah. Super smart guy. Anyway, he he's a very, very good magician. And he would never tell me how he did tricks, but he because we're friends, he would do the same trick over and over and over <laughs> and give you know, give me a chance to try to figure it out. And I get so frustrated. And I remember one day he said, Chris, don't worry about it. Smart people are the easiest to trick. The ones that are really hard yep. are children and idiots. Yep, absolutely. Because they don't. You can't lead them. You yep. can't misdirect their, because their gaze is already kind of scattered. And so they're more likely to pick up something you don't want them to see. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> so this intelligence is an interesting thing. I, you know, it's, a, it's a relationship between intelligence and salience. Hmm. You know, like it's like idiots just don't pay attention to the things that, you know, that we're, we're kind of essentially programmed to, to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> well, an intelligence can, can be... Um, you know, relating it to this magic thing, I think so many people, like you were describing yourself in high school and how you would have gone to MIT and you would have done this, you know, genetic engineering and you probably wouldn't have ended up making categators. Right. Is that what it was? Um, but you'd have some job, big pharma. Probably. Doing, a, doing research somewhere. Lab. Yeah. 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 Try, try, trying to feel like I, you know, I, I meant, meant something and meaning very little at all. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like you came from a tumultuous family background. So maybe you would have been like, I'm going to have a steady job and I'm going to have a big oh, yeah, retirement so a, account and I'm going to. I was yeah, the first, first, first person in my generation in my family to go to college. Right. The first in my, my yeah, outside of right. my side of the family. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so yeah, the intelligence it, actually makes you very vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Because at a young age, you get programmed really quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas those of us who are more scattered and you know for one reason or another aren't getting the message have a better chance of not getting caught up in the the march toward misery it's true or mediocrity <laughs> exactly. it's true absolutely true actually i'm seeing the march toward misery i really can't wait for your uh for your book i'm kind of oh I'm kind of waiting for this the the, the 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 science Thank of you. the science of happiness is like it's one of my it's been one of my like pet you know mm -hmm. pet things for for a number of years and um i i'm really i'm really curious to to see the angle on it yeah yeah it's the, the, I, I bit off more than I could chew with that book. You should have. Yeah, it's it, that's the problem. Though. That's why I can't 
quite finish it. Casilda <laughs> is reading the manuscript. She just finished like an hour ago, and we started talking. I was like, can we do this later? Because, you know, this woman's coming, and I don't want to have uh, this, <laughs> half this conversation on my mind. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's just, I, I don't know about writing these books. I'm, I'm at the stage now where I feel like I'll never do this again. But I guess it's like having babies, you know? Like, right. Or you're going to be like Cher, who says, this is my last tour, and it never is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I, I, I'd i like to write books just not this kind, not these big idea books. Right. You know? Well, uh, you, what, would you want to do more exploratory, kind of uh, existentialistic stuff? Well, the, I've got several ideas for books that uh, I think would be more fun to write mm-hmm. and more sort of first person and not research-based and you know right. arguing with a narrative. But, but this this is back to that intelligence thing we often feel like you know if you're if you have a grip on an idea it's somehow you have to be the one to help expose it and explore it and, and show it to people you know that somehow your own story your own you know whatever you're trying to do may not be as interesting but i guess probably probably through your through this exploration of like doing the podcast and whatever else probably realize that oh wait no actually you know you you, you can connect with that kind of person and and lead them somewhere yeah i don't know that i'm so interesting i just know that i i'm lazy and <laughs> I, you know great. lazy in the sense that i don't I, I i've never really been able to stick to doing anything that i didn't enjoy mm-hmm. inherently so you know which is one of the reasons probably i've i've spent a lot of time studying sex because i just like it and it's Amen. interesting so I, I built my entire career on that i was like it's like you know for being such a pervert maybe i should uh, do something with that yeah yeah, I, it's follow your bliss. I don't know if that's what Joseph Campbell had in mind, but I hope so. I certainly hope so. <laughs> Onward to orgasm. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've told this story before on the podcast, but uh, or on somebody's podcast. Maybe it was Holly Randall. Do you know who she is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she, I was on her podcast recently, and I was telling her about because she asked me like, when did you get interested in sexuality and all that, and. Uh, I was talking about the first woman, the first girl I had sex with, I was 15 and she was probably 17 or something. And um, she had orgasms when I went down on her, but not from intercourse. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was really interesting. And like, (laughs) hmm. You know, and it wasn't wasn't like I was uh, uptight, like there's something wrong with my dick or, you know, I didn't have that sort of typical fragile male reaction. But you had typical male, male programming, which is that, that penis and vagina equals, you know, happiness. Well, she, she was happy. Right. She just wasn't coming. And I was like, okay, so what is it? Like, what's, mm, what is that? And so I like, bought vibrators and and she was cool she's like yeah let's experiment Uh, what a a great great first experience yeah it was great so we spent uh over a year and i i had benoit balls and you know vibrating eggs and french ticklers and all this stuff i'm 15 i had this lockbox in my closet so my mother wouldn't get it you and i would have been friends (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) then you really wouldn't have gotten into mit forget about it yeah, because I was also smoking weed, and you know, I was I was a bit of a corrupting influence. I was pretty I was pretty corrupted already. It was oh, fine. Were you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, you, trust me, you wouldn't you wouldn't have worked. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't think I've ever been a goody two shoes in my entire life. Oh really? <sighs> See, I got that impression from the you know AP classes and. No, I I uh, I, I was um 
um, I was com- compulsive in, in, ex- in excelling at things. I still am in my life, yeah. um, but not because I wanted any any um, accolades from oh, it. I was okay. just I was just compulsive about about wanting to see how far I could go and how and and like I wanted to be able to break a barrier. No, absolutely. I, I was I was uh, going to raves and I was selling party drugs to pay for my grandmother's cancer medication. I was driving down to Florida where there was a um, a big lab and thank God the statute of limitations is, is passed on all these things, but buying large amounts of LSD and MDMA and I had and I, I started learning like, a lot more about chemistry and like working with the chemist to make a specific type of pill and then, you know, would drive back up the Carolinas, go to different parties, go to different like different raves, you know, and, and was was selling large amounts of, of drugs. Mm. Um and uh, my grandmother thought I was just I was just did pulling like you know dual shifts at Denny's, <laughs> and here and her medications were really expensive. And yeah. you know I was and, and and like that was I'm not gonna say like it was completely you know a um, humanitarian effort on my part because I certainly was having a great time. Um, but I actually kind of I kind of was a bit of a sexual predator when I was younger. Um, because and it was it was very much that rave scene that kind of gave me access to it was I I considered myself mostly homosexual um, at the time and I would go to these parties and I you know would have would have quite a lot of, of stuff on me and I'd have girls come up to me and they'd be like you know um, you know oh I heard you have the stuff you know you have pills and you know what what can I you know uh, I, but I don't really have enough money or whatever and at first I, I kind of would just be like no you're broke go away and then after a little while I started doing this thing like well, you want to go to the bathroom? If you can get me off, then uh, maybe I'll give you a pill. And this was an addiction. Like I, I was, I've never had, never had a, a relationship with drugs that I ever considered to to be anything other than like fairly healthy. Mm. Um, but seeing what people will do when you are a position of power was absolutely intoxicating. So that was your entree into this yeah. Well, I mean, thing? I um not I say no, not as a dominatrix. I you know I was I was already exploring that stuff previously, but mm. you know I was I was having four or five girls a night that were like eating me out in the bathroom and like filthy, disgusting places and like you know making some girl like you know lick my pussy like over a toilet and you know all kinds of stuff and because I because I, I was just drunk on this this power right mm. um and. You know, I, I started to realize, okay, well, maybe, just maybe, this is not the right way you should be going about these things. Um, and a couple of years later, I, I met my my mentor. And I had I had previously had kind of like a pseudo-DS relationship, a dominant-submissive relationship with my first girlfriend, um, who, living in the Deep South, you're not allowed to be homosexual. And this was the other part of the thing that I was exploring, is I was like literally going to raves in South Carolina and where, you know, where, where you're not allowed to have alternate sexuality, right? So I'm, t- and then part of my thrill was like, I was getting straight girls who did not want to have anything to do with the sexual things, do sexual things to me in exchange for, you know, for drugs. So do you think, were they getting off on the their own submissiveness there? I feel like there was. I mean, it's not like you know I ever like forced someone to do it, but I certainly there certainly was an element of coercion there, right? right. Um, and they could have said no. It's not like I you know I was but like not, doing. But you weren't selling crack either. No, I mean, no, no, it, no. You're talking about MDMA. Or yeah, yeah, acid. and and, and, and nobody's and it, like Jones in for it. Yeah, exactly. But but like it was. I think it was a little bit part of that rave culture and and you know that uh, like like free love kind of thing. Um, but it was. You know, like I, so I had, I had this girlfriend, and um, you know, I had to hide the fact that I had a girlfriend by having a trophy boyfriend, which now we call them beards, um, and you know, who to like to to look like I was having a, a normal, you know, heterosexual relationship, um, and 
my my girlfriend was you know was awesome for for like the, the thing that we had but then you know as i started to i started to make mistakes in in like this aspect of authority um and including that my girlfriend wanted to uh, wanted to experience having sex with a man, and this is actually this is, the, this is the first time that I realized that monogamy was wrong. Actually, it was like a really pivotal point for me in a lot of things in my life. Uh, so she came to me and she says, "I want to experience having sex with a man," and she never know, had, and she never had, you know, yeah. and like, and I, I didn't react well. In fact, now the the adult me would have gone, "I'm going to find a man. I'm going to make this an, an entire production. I'm going to, you know, control all the aspects of it, and it's going to be an amazing thing for both of us." And, but. You know, teenage me was like, I'm releasing you as my slave. I, I thought I knew all the things. I read a book and obviously thought I was an expert. I, you know, I'm releasing you as my slave and I don't want to have a relationship with you anymore. And, you know, get the fuck out and, you know, I'm done with you. And when, you know, a couple months later, she winds up pregnant. She'd been raped. And she had, you know, made some bad decisions about someone in the local community um, and who had, you know, violated her boundaries. And this ended up with me holding her hand through an abortion. And I realized that I had fucked up. Like that was that it was my job as it, it, because I had this power this power relationship that it, that I had had this authority this responsibility. And instead of doing something good with it, you know, I I basically kind of turned her out and and you know not not to say that she didn't have her own responsibility about her own behavior and all those things, but she was submissive and that was my job, you know. And I didn't do my job, so I I felt like it was it was important for me to go and find you know some education and i i was mentored by by a woman for a little while um who was half japanese and i swear if this woman had had if there's been there'd been a hill and buckets of water and you know i'd been i've been carrying those buckets up and down this thing because that was like it was her her mo is to you know to, to kind of instill this, this aspect of, of self-discipline and it worked it really did um and it gave me a really good framework for how I understood BDSM and how I understood DS relationships but I had no interest in ever being a professional dominatrix this was just like my own like personal personal journey um so when you say she was your mentor uh, obviously she was teaching you how to responsibly be in the role of the dominant partner. Yes, and and one of the one of the old like old school methods of, of learning is that you to bottom first essentially. Okay, that's what I was yeah. wondering. Right, and and I, w- I didn't have a relationship with her that that was a DS relationship. It was definitely like a student teacher thing. Huh. Uh, she had she owned two submissives, a male and a female submissives, and they had been with her for a long time. And this was like my first real successful view of what you know non monogamy and like polyamorous relationships look like, and they all and they looked perfect together they look like a fucking christmas card you know and i was like i want that that's what i want in my life um so you know i would co- go over to her house on the weekends and she would teach me things she would teach me things about bondage and about you know about various different like implements and and how to construct a scene and how to do how to interact with a submissive in a way that that was nurturing to both parties mm. and i feel like that was a critical piece you know right. um and you know like later on when I when I ventured into professional domination I felt like I had a much better handle on things um, but you know even coming out of out of that mentoring um, kind of, of situation I really didn't I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself as a dominant you know I feel like I knew a lot of these things but I you know I I started I started to unravel that kind of part of the ego of thinking why would anyone want to serve me if I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? Like if I understand how to use this whip, but 
I don't know how to understand how to what to do with the rest of my life, right? You know, like I like I I was I was like you know eighteen and and kind of a, a bit of an idiot, um, you know, like like you are, and I was full of ideas and no follow through. So I uh, decided that I was going to get involved in a relationship with a male dominant, and because I do nothing in my life by halves, I went and found myself a really really aggressive like like hardcore live in 24 7 master slave like you sleep on the floor you don't you know you eat out of you know you eat what i tell you to eat you know you you don't sit on the furniture kind of thing and that went over you know pretty poorly uh honestly because it's just not the person i am but mm. um it it taught me a whole lot of things taught me a whole lot of things about things that i didn't want to do and also taught me about you know like there was a there was another another submissive uh in the relationship early on and also taught me i was like oh that's a thing that I want. Like I really enjoyed this commonality and enjoyed interfacing with her. And I, you know, I kind of started to wrap my, wrap my head around things. Um, so after, after all of that and like moving into my early twenties, when I moved into professional domination, I, I felt like I just had a good solid understanding of what not to do <laughs> and like how not to treat people. That, that, um, you know, bottoming as a way to learn how to be a top. <laughs> Very good recovery. I wish, I, wish we had video. We're sitting in these these weird chairs. You can there's a oh, clip yeah. on the side that'll uh, yeah, go, go. that was good. It's fine. This is my acrobatic chair. <laughs> you're you're good. You're good. Okay. And you were silent too. There's no scream. <laughs> you, you should you should see the number of times that I trip over things in my own videos, fall over myself in heels, whatever, and then recover, and then just look at the camera and be like, "It's fine, it's That's fine." Funny. Yeah, you were, that was very feline. It was like <laughs> that kind of like wah, but no scream. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, bottoming as a way to learn how to top seems seems problematic to me because. I mean, my understanding, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong about all this, but my sense of the value of these things is that you learn how to move closer to who you are, mm -hmm. and so e yes and no. Um, I so so if we're if we're um, you know uh, making the, the distinction. We're making the distinction between bottoming <coughs> and topping and dominance and submission. Yeah. Um, it's very valuable to learn how to top by learning how to, how to bottom. You don't have to be an authentic bottom um, and authentically enjoy what you're doing in order to understand the physiology of what's happening. Right? Oh, physiology. Sure, yeah. And, or, sure. or, or to understand, you know, the proper way to use an implement or why, oh, yeah. why, why you do to a warm up. To be tied or, up and feel what it's right, like. Right, right. Or, or to, un to understand, yeah. you know, what, what the, the arc of, you know, of play looks like and, okay. you know, all that stuff. Right. However, um, everyone falls... Everyone, everyone's on on a spectrum of, of dominance and submission. No one's a hundred percent. It's just, it's just, it's just like you know, it, 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 there's there's no one who's fully straight and or you know fully gay. Like we we all fall somewhere in that that thing. And the older I've gotten, the more I, I've been. I've I really really strongly believe that. Um, your orientation with someone has a lot to do with your your chemistry with them. It's very specific to to a person. Mm. It's it's much more rare to find people in who are switches, um, who switch back and forth with the same partner and have a power dynamic associated with it. There might be a play dynamic that's just fine, right? right. But don't tend to have like some kind of uh, of, of dynamic there. So in that particular situation, I, I learned a lot about the fact that. 
I didn't would not ever consider myself submissive. In fact, you know, I, I although I, I certainly enjoy certain kinds of scenarios and like rough sex scenarios and weird crazy stuff. Um, as a person, I consider myself dominant, and identify dominant, um, but. In, I, I learned so much from being on the receiving end of, of what someone else thought was reasonable mm. and how they navigated training another person and, you know, like the expectations you put and like an understanding. Like there's a there's a really weird relationship between um, trying to eliminate someone's um, autonomy, but still increasing their advocacy. Right. Mm. You know, it's like it's, it's, a, it's a really weird place to be. So I'm not saying that like. I mean, there's some really terrible, abusive things, and there's restraining orders and all things that happened at the end of that relationship, like you do with, when you're younger. With the dude, yeah, with the dude, right. yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I just feel like it was it was definitely a, a really it was like a really important piece, and strangely, not something that I've I've honestly been able to share much of because in my line of work, um, you know, female like dominatrixes and and you know uh, fetish porn stars and everything else, we are we're, we're looked at as comic book characters. You have mm. to be a, you're a very one dimensional creature right. who has to look a certain way, and your life and everything you do in it and and the person you are needs to conform to the person's fantasy who who buys your you know your material. Yeah, you don't get to be a person, you know. And um, I, as part of doing this documentary, I've been kind of really upfront and 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 out about a lot of things because I'm trying to um you know at first I really didn't want to but they they were they were like really feel like you need to be human try to be human um <laughs> I'm like I'm not really human I'm actually an alien that's funny but um it was like this yeah. this push toward authenticity in in sex work and, yeah. and in porn and things yeah. like that I feel like it's a really important thing to do man I I worked with a producer for a while putting together a pitch for a tv show Mm-hmm. And I remember our first serious meeting where you know we sat down and start scoping it out. And he said to me, "This is a guy who'd done a bunch of documentaries and some other TV work." And he said to me, "Okay, so what's your persona going to be?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, like, who are you going to be? Are you going to be like the funny guy? You're going to be the scientist? You're going to be this that?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to be authentic." And he said, oh, okay, you're going to be that authentic. Guy. Yeah, that guy. In quotes, right? I was like, oh, fuck, man. Yep. Really? Already we're talking? It's like, oh, I'm getting... And he pointed out, and he made a good point. He's like, look, because the, the pitch was it was going to be like a, a weekly series, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he's like, you have to be the same person every week. You can't be like, oh, this week I'm in a shitty mood because my mom's sick. Mm-hmm. Or, you know... Uh, you know, whatever. I, I didn't sleep well last night, so I'm going to be more subdued. This No, you have to be, you have to hit the same notes every time you're right. on camera. Such when you're performing, yeah. Yeah. Cause, and so it's like, even if you're authentic, you got to be consistently authentic, even when you're not feeling authentic. Oh, and so that's that's the life journey, being consistently authentic, right? Yeah. Well, then, but that's also the difference between like, when you're creating a product or you're creating, you know, like you're something that, that people need to are consuming versus how they might interface with you as a human. Right. And I'm saying like, obviously like my, the persona that I have in my videos and I've got, I've got a, a couple of, 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 you know, once it reoccur, but then I always, my, my primary one is, as uh, Dominus snow or goddess snow or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, like that, that persona always has to, you're right. You have, you have to always meet the same, same notes and you need to have a consistent you know way that you're interfacing even if you're the one writing all the material and you know you're the one is improving whatever super villain dialogue to a camera but you're the the way that you get to project yourself in social media and the way that people 
you know, uh, see you needs to be more about you as the person and not about you as the character. Mm. And I feel like that's, that's something that like actors um, often get, especially people who do like, you know, uh, long, long run TV shows and things like that, where like they, they stop getting to be a person and they have to be the character they've been playing for 10 years every right. time they, interf- they interface with the public. Yeah. Yeah. So... But, yeah, you, know, you get but, stuck in your character. But I, I feel like the authenticity is so important when we're talking about sex because, you know, we've got this huge conversation around um, what sex work looks like, right? And yeah. whether or not it's okay and whether or not sex workers are feminists and whether or not, you know, porn marginalizes women and blah, 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 blah. And if you just are brave enough to come out and say... I like sex. I also like to do these videos. I also like to be a pervert. I also like the things. I'm also a whole human being and not broken and damaged. And I can also try to interface with your authenticity and it's all okay. Mm-hmm. And that is something that's really, truly missing. So I'm just hopeful that, that at least at least a little bit I'll be able to inspire other, other women to feel a little more authentic in how they pursue their sexuality out of this. What do you think, how does that align with what you just said about how you need to be a comic book character? Because you're sort of shaping something to meet these rather simple uh, projections of men. Sure. Well, I I think that there has to be a differentiation between creating a video, creating a fantasy, creating a scenario, um, and exploring it, and presenting yourself as that character, right? Mm. Like I, I often look at my persona as the suit of armor that I that I strap on and I go do battle and strap then I, on. and yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pun intended. You got it. And then take it off yeah. and, you know, be a real person now and I'm done. It doesn't mean that that, that, that suit of armor isn't shaped like me uh-huh. and doesn't fit like me and it is always hasn't molded by by the person that I am. But, you know, it's it's a different it's a different kind of form. And I feel like because of the fragile masculinity like view of of uh, sexual gratification that happens, especially in porn, um, men go, no, 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 you are my fantasy. You are my fantasy girl, and I am really attached to the idea of, of, of you know what your life looks like or serving you or being with you or fucking you or one of those things. So anything that deviates from that means that now you are no longer my fantasy. Right. And, you know, it's that Madonna whore That's complex. That's what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. yeah. It's another reflection of that. And so I feel like by by showing that I can both encompass all of that fantasy and do it fucking well right and also be my own person that's you know that's that's amazing and and you know most days i think i'm amazing some days i'm not so much um you know and and it's out there like doing like living life and exploring things and and you know having good intimate connections that these things are not exclusive in fact one feeds the other mm. and i feel like that's a good a good place to show women especially with women it's like i mean the number of women who don't even know how their bodies work let alone mm. how how to explore their own sexual fantasies you know it's, it's mind-boggling yeah yeah. What I, this here's something I've been I've thought about a lot. And oh like, yeah, I'd come on, lay on me. Yeah, like you know, okay, you you identify in your personal sexuality as dominant, it, mm-hmm. and you also do professionally. So those align, right? Um, do you feel when you're working with someone who identifies as submissive, let's say? Do you feel that they are working through some psychological challenges, phases of growth? Because you've talked about 
um, helping someone, you know, restricting their autonomy on the surface level mm-hmm. while actually trying to be nurturing mm-hmm. and, and thereby increasing their autonomy. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you feel that the dominant submissive relationship, as you envision it, is a, a, a nurturing process or is it just a place someone goes to relax? In other words, is it a journey or is it a place? It's both. both. And it's both because it really depends on the person. So for some people, the the role, you know, the, the, the way that they identify and, and, and want to cleave to as far as a, um, a method of their relationship, um, whether it's dominant or submissive, has a lot more to do with how they identify in the world and how they interface with the world and may have a lot, uh, actually much more to do with how they connect with another person. For example, like I identify as dominant, but I don't go around like browbeating the bag boy, right? Because, you know, I'm having a bad day and I you know, want to take it out on yeah. him. Um, and, and I don't have dominant submissive relationships with my all my partners, right? Mm-hmm. Um it has more to do with like an in, in like a specific type of chemistry. Um, often, people that I work with who are submissive of both genders come in. They are looking for nurturing. Often, there's a, there's certainly a different points of healing. There's a, a place of feeling safe and being able to explore. You know, this this these things that are really scary and often you know have some things to do with childhood and you know whatever else. And then there's also just the the, the actual sexual fantasy part of it, which may have zero to do with any of the the like healing process that they may be doing or mm. or their self discovery or anything else um, so you think that sexual excitement level exists separate from life experience it can it can be both i've certainly you know certainly for a lot of people like internalize like their role as a dominant or a submissive as as their sexuality mm. um, but i've known plenty of people for whom are you know like really believe in you know egalitarian is like is always the way to go and ds relationships are or whatever and I've seen them do some fucked up scenes, right? In mm-hmm. which that like they're brutal and you know harsh and whatever else. And then when the scenes are like, okay, cool, and go out to lunch. So I I feel like the I feel like the 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 exploration of one's like sexual fantasies have have should really be allowed to be done kind of um, in its own bubble, mm-hmm. right? Uh, away from what does this mean? Like my favorite one is like I don't know what this means. What does this mean about me? What does this like? What is this commentary about like myself? And you know, where do these interests come from? And you know, I, I did it. I did an entire paper on like fetish, um, fetish formation. You know, and like the the where fetishes come from. And you know, um, you know, obviously it's all super speculative because you know we still don't really know, but. What I what I love to tell people is like it doesn't matter where your desires come from as long as your desires aren't hurting someone else your desires are not wrong so why are you asking yourself where the hell they come from like why aren't you asking yourself how do I explore them how do I decide if I like them how do I go and have really amazing sex with someone or someone's or by yourself or wherever you're trying to do but isn't that part of enjoying it is to understand where it comes from because if it comes from you know, if, if the person suspects that it comes from some erotic feeling they had toward their mother or something, they might not want to explore it because it might be scary to them. Sure, there's shame attached to it. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing is that there's often a huge amount of the things that we explore in taboos that are exciting because they're shameful. Because right? they're taboos. Yeah, because they're taboos. So have you ever thought that in doing the kind of work that you do and, and that I do, that by removing so much shame, we're actually 
removing a lot of excitement from people's sexuality? I just had this conversation um, because, like, like the, obviously the removal of shame is such a big deal, right? Um, is that, yes, actually you are because, you know, so much, like, our sexuality is, you know, so much just biological and then, you know, so much cultural and, and all that stuff. Is that, like, the cultural component of that, if you I start... I like how you make that, that gesture like you're holding balls when you, you talk about the different... <laughs> I was thinking it was like a cup. <laughs> oh, there's a cup. But, right, yeah, right. Whole, whole balls, too. Those are really sorry, big balls. I was projecting on here. <laughs> yes, I'm holding all this biological <laughs> sex in my hand. Um, so, but I feel like, um, I feel like the the cultural component of it like that's it's a bit fluid right mm. but yeah if you, if you start to really remove shame um certainly lots of things will become less exciting but then probably other things become more exciting right ah, so, so you think there's like a, a conservation of excitement yes rule to absolutely the good 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 physics thing there yeah yeah e equals mc squared yeah right and, and i feel I, I actually do really feel like that so you know perfect example is uh people get into swinging yeah. okay you know all of a sudden now now that you've taken away the shame of having sex with someone who's not your partner um now what's on the table and some people go into swinging and they're like oh, okay this is really cool and we'll go do it every once in a while or whatever and some people are like i'm gonna fuck the whole world and <laughs> You know, I get it. I, I get those things. But I, yeah. I, I don't usually find people go, come back and go, you know, I, I feel like I just want to return back to the thing I went because none of this is exciting anymore. Mm. They usually go explore something else is exciting or they may use whatever they've kind of discovered about themselves to now turn toward intimacy being, you know, being the thing that's exciting. At least from my from my standpoint, and I've explored a lot of, of sexual fantasies of other people, um, is that I see that the thing that, pe that people come back to is their intimate connection with another person, right? And that's that's the thing that kind of holds it together mm. as the glue, or like their concept of intimate connections with people in general as a like a you know as a whole view instead of a single person. Do you th you, you work with men and women mm -hmm. as professionally? Do you think do men and women experience their erotic submissiveness differently? Absolutely. Um, you know, especially in, a, in the Westernized culture where, you know, men are not allowed to to experience uh, or, or, or allowed to be submissive. The idea is that, you know, you're weak and, you know, you're worthless and, and all those things. So they've absolutely internalized that. Um, whereas women have a, a cultural, you know, like approval for being submissive, mm. right? So, you know, it's a much more natural thing. But what's curious is that Usually, as a whole, men cleave toward humiliation in inside their like their desires, whereas women abhor it. It's not to say it's not that, that there aren't plenty of people who don't. And usually, more self-actualized women are like, "Yeah, humiliation is great. You know, call me whatever you want. I'd feel pretty good about myself." Um, but at, with with regards to like most men, it's a process usually of digging through. Uh, the permission to even get there, right? Whereas women will kind of go, yeah, I'm, I'm already there. I want to, I want to explore those things. In fact, you spend a lot more time telling women that, like a female submissive, that she's valuable and that she, you know, is is worth something and she's, you know, she's an important part of the process and she's allowed to speak her mind and things like that. Whereas with a, with a guy, you're you're mostly being like, I need you to get out of your own head. I need you to stop being stoic. I need you, to, you know, to actually feel your own feelings and and experience this thing authentically. When, when you say pack, unpack permissions, what do you mean? The the man's permissions to to go to different deeper levels? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like it's like it's the you know are the programming you know you have mm. the, um, of whether or not you have feel like you have permission to do that thing to experience that thing. Oh, whether he has permission yeah. himself. Right. Exactly. Uh, I yeah. see. Yeah. Okay. Right. 
It doesn't matter what, what, what I tell him he gives, has permission to do if, you know, is, if he's listening to all the, you know, all the authoritative voices in his head, right. mine's not really in charge. So to, to reframe my earlier question in sort of the reverse way, do you ever feel like by engaging these energies that you're obstructing growth in a client? I do um, only when... I feel like I'm I, like I don't know enough and I don't have enough context, right? Um, I I try I try to to err on the side of caution when I'm I'm trying to to get someone to to a place and try to just focus on like a specific fantasy or a scene or whatever or or give them a base level type of nurturing supportive environment. Most for most people, they their growth is going to happen from the very from the very moment they realize they're in the same room with another person who's not judging them, right? So they're going to do a whole lot of that work on their own. Mm. Um, but if I feel like I'm, I'm venturing down a path through which that I don't have a lot of illumination, I try to err on the side of caution and say, and, and, and get that person to come with me in it and, and as much pick out the rest of the path rather than me saying, this is the place you need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And then I feel like that's a kind of an important distinction. Like, you know, I study a lot of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. yeah. And so I, f- I feel like it's really important to get someone to, to have like full autonomy inside that process. Um, but a lot of times you're not going to get that person to, to place of self-awareness enough inside the, the context of a scene or, you know, like a BDSM, you know, relationship. Most of the time I'm just, I'm just trying to get them, you know, to just feeling open and accepted and, and like their, their sexuality is, is an okay thing to interface with really. Mm, yeah. It's amazing how, how many parallels there are between this and therapy. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost, I've often thought, to the point where it's almost an artificial separation between the two. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my wife's a psychiatrist and she's sort of going through a thing. And again, the audience has heard this, heard her talk about it. But she's she's going through a bit of a career crisis because she's finally uh, acted on something that she's felt for a long time, which is that That's awesome. the, psych, the psychiatric approach is corrupted. It, Absolutely. It's, you know. And one of, uh, part of it is she's just tired of giving people pills to cover up mm-hmm. problems that aren't being addressed on a deep structural level, mm-hmm. uh, sending them back to their unhealthy lives and, you know, miserable relationships and, and not dealing with the things. Absolutely. But also, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, ha- as a clinician, she's forbidden from touching anyone. And she's like, that's crazy oh it's a, it's a know, foundation I, block i, I oh mean i'm talking with a child and the child's crying and i can't hug this kid mm-hmm. like that's totally unnatural you know and in america forget about it with all this you know crazy sex phobia here but um yeah that you know to have an uh, uh, be in an intimate space with someone where you're forbidden from touching each other mm-hmm. is now i understand the need for protection. I understand that there's a lot of abuse that happens and, yeah. and all yeah. this. Yeah. Um, but, but you're you not know, actually, actually, you're not actually being able to give the person what they need. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're, you're Absolutely. saying, tell me what you need, get, you know, be, be psychologically naked with me, but I can't, I right. can't respond to that. In, well, because, in the and, and, and especially way. because the, one of the foundation pieces 
of getting someone to understand their vulnerability is showing them that you are also vulnerable right. and you're willing to be vulnerable in that space with them. And you can't. In fact, this is 100% the reason why I, I didn't finish um, going through to getting my PhD at Johns Hopkins was because I really felt in like this deep desire to to affect people's, you know, affect people positively in a, from a sexual way. And I was like, I can't, I can't fucking do any of the things that I would want to do. Like, you know, I went and did, you know, the, mm-hmm. an, an ethics class in which they talk about all the things and like, and the, and the way the professional distance is supposed to work and how you're supposed to encapsulate yourself. And I was like, but to what end? This is useless. Right. I don't, I, by the time we're going to get to pharmacology, everyone's going to be have, have distanced themselves away from it. Exactly. <clears throat> and I feel like, oh my God, the, the, the touch aspect of it is critical. I've done entire sessions that are literally just, you know, tying someone up, immobilizing them in something, and then just laying next to them just mm. to have, to, for that person to have human contact. Mm. They break down crying. They have like, some of them haven't touched their wives or, you know, their partners or they live alone. And so in so long, they've oh, forgotten yeah. what that feels like, yeah. you know? And, uh, and it's like, this is a magical thing that you can do. And why in the world would you not, would you not do it? Why, why, why are you not allowed to? Yeah. Yeah, I worked as a massage therapist for years, and uh, so valuable. Yeah, jeez. And I actually learned the most that I learned about massage was from my girlfriend, who was a stripper at the time. Mm-hmm. And she'd come home after stripping, and her way of relaxing was to give me a massage. <laughs> it was great. This, this was a good year. <laughs> Sounds like it was. <laughs> hey, do you know anyone who works as a sex surrogate therapist? I don't personally. We just did a really awesome interview with a sex therapist when we were in San Diego, and I and I didn't know know who she was before I, I were doing the interview, and I kind of thought she was a sex surrogate, and she she's not. Um, but I really actually would love to love to find some and have good conversations with because yeah. I, I feel like there's there's a lot of commonality there. Yeah, if anyone listening to this has a contact, send it in. I'd, yeah, I'd like to interview because I think that's that's one area. It's kind of in a gray space legally. Some mm-hmm. states it's legal, some not. I think. Um, but it's, it's, it, I think it's a very interesting overlap there between physical contact, sexuality, intimacy, and also uh, therapeutic. Absolutely. Uh, I, th- this is, I think, one of the things that we, that we're really lacking in the online world of femdom, right? Is that, you know, there's a, there's a big disconnect, even though it doesn't appear to be a disconnect between online domination and the videos we produce and in-person domination. And as someone who does both of those things, um, you know, I can tell you that like there, it's a completely, completely different skill set. but I can't reach through a computer screen and touch someone, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can to interface with their brain. And most of the time I'm making videos, I have thousands of videos at this point of just trying to model what I'm saying after you know, people that I've known how and how I've interfaced with them, but like you're still you're still guessing. I'm not getting that feedback loop. So you know, how 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 do you really how do you really connect in a way that I mm. feel like it's like really meaningful? Yeah. So you you're not Sierra does all her stuff just uh, online, but mm-hmm. you have in person activity. Yeah. So I I own a five thousand square foot facility in a, in Ohio, and this then is I, a dungeon. It's a dungeon, it's a dungeon, and a, and a production studio. Five thousand uh, square foot dungeon. Yeah. It's pretty. It's is pretty it underground? Is it, it is, a bunker? It is not. It is, it is a very nondescript, uh, like block building because you know uh, it's, it's right. still it's still the Midwest. So you know, yeah, you don't you don't want anybody to, to know all of, about those things. Um, but is it a, is it illegal? 
No, and, and, and just be and, hassled. It, no, actually, it's um, my my business is one hundred percent legal in Columbus. Uh, it's not true in every state, not true mm. in every county. Um, and you know, like there's there's certainly things that we we can't do. Right. Um, but you but, don't have sexual interactions with your clients. No. No. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, I the probably the, the most sexual things that I do are you know I I do things like like um, uh, hand jobs and bondage and things like that in videos, um, but I won't do them in actual sessions. Right. Um, and it's mostly just because I, I, I like the genre and I like the way it is and the videos make a lot of money and they're fun. So, you know, I'll do them, but like I can't, I can't do those things in sessions. Um, but and actually, uh, uh, Sarah and I have been friends for many years and we were kind of like the, the two of the people who started our, our genre. Oh, and really? it's, about, it's basically what the documentary is about is the, um, how the, where the genre came from and how it kind of exploded and how now, you know, Femdom POV is like the fastest growing part and the women in this industry are making a lot of money, you know? I mean, certainly those of us who are in the upper echelons are making substantially more money than, than the re- like the lower ones. However, um, you know, it's, it's heavily populated online, right? Mm. And there's just, just so much, so much content out of it. So your genre is what? Um, so the, the primary genre is femdom POV, female femdom dom. POV, yeah. point of view. So the majority of it um, is is just like Sarah's stuff, is, is speaking directly to the camera. Right. Um, my, I, the part of the genre that I created came from me talking to the camera, not in a, like, uh, talking to them as if, as if they were just like a no person, but actually talking to them as a as a person that I had interacted with as a slave in my own dungeon. So I had this like like kind of real life you know mentality around it. Um, and then and the funny thing is that I never in, actually intended to make videos. Um, I was creating an instruction manual for the girls that worked for me, and you know it was like kind of on on the on the advent of like these clip sites. Um, and I was like, it looks like we're like, we're starting to see this, like, you know, this kind of material starting to come out. I'm going to write this manual. I'm going to make a month's worth of videos with my shitty webcam. And I'm just going to just kind of wing it. And it doesn't matter if these things do well, cause I'm just writing an instruction manual. And I did. And the thing was in the first month that I was, that, that I did this, my store rose to the top 50 mm. and you know, it was like beating out thousands and thousands of other stores. And I'm like, I'm not even, I don't even doing something I think is, is I, mean, I wasn't actually even trying. I was just really just kind of going through all the motions. And I thought, okay, this is, it's going to be a flash in the pan. It's going to go away. You know, um, you know, like it's, it's, uh, um, it's going to be like the next morning and I'm, and yes, Wesley, I'm not going to kill you. Um, and it just never did. It's been seven years now or going on eight years and my store never fell off, you know? So like we just decided, okay, well let's just figure this thing out as we went. And your audience is international, I take it. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to think intergalactic, but I don't know. I'm not getting the uh, payments from the other planets. Yeah, yet. it's hard to process those. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Bitcoin's the future for Bitcoin. that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, remind me to tell you a story about William Shatner. Oh, yes, please. Uh, off mic. Yes, uh, please. I don't want to. <laughs> Talking about intergalactic. Uh, where was I going? I was gonna. I had a question for you there. Damn, I lost it. Clients. I lost it. Well, yeah. Do you think? It, I mean, it's obviously it's anecdotal, but do you have a sense that a higher pr- proportion of men are engaging with this kind of energy if in particular cultures? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the, the, the more male-dominated cultures, such as like the Middle Eastern cultures and like in Indian cultures and things like that, um, interface with the hardest um, and most severe of the content. Absolutely. Okay. 
Now, how, where does that come from? What, what's your thinking on that? Well, I mean, it's, it's the same reason why being submissive as a man has taboo associated with it and yeah. why it can be so exciting. It's because it's an internalized, you know, um, you know, feeling of like, of, of maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the other way is, is good or why, why is this exciting? It's the same, like it, it all internalized taboos, right. You know, have to have, have to come out somewhere. But then why are women submissive? If they're, if they're so many women are, I've asked myself this too. And I think it comes from the fact that, um, we, we have a, a culture, especially when in, in male dominated culture or with previously male dominated, kind of, kind of really turned in the corner on this. Right. Um, is that men are, are, are kind of allowed to explore more of whatever their sexual desires are, right? Mm. And there's so there's 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 almost like a a, a baseline level permission, right. so that they can even even though this thing is obviously culturally unacceptable, you know they can still they can still tell, ask themselves, you know, can I get can I get off to this? Um, whereas women are still a, a bit feeling like okay, I'm not I'm not these are not things I'm allowed to I'm not allowed because if I'm if I'm you know, explore any of my sexuality, then what? Because I've met met so many women for whom they have dominant fantasies, for whom they're like, well, but I'm supposed to do what he wants me to do, right? Mm. And like, no, get on him and write him until you're done. And if he comes first, then smack him. Mm. Like, just do what you want to do. Like, literally, like when I I counsel with couples, 90% of the conversation that I have with women who want to be dominant are, are literally just do what you want to do figure out what what you like and then continue to do more of it and ask your partner to do that. That's what he wants. And, and they're just like, no, no, but I can't. Right. Um, and I see that when I've interfaced with, with women in, in like Middle Eastern cultures, Indian cultures, and there's, there's, you know, plenty of other ones. Um, I can't even have that conversation. Mm. We don't even get there. So I feel like that's probably the, the bigger part of it. So you think if I understood you correctly, that, that, uh, a lot of women's sexual submissiveness is that they are experiencing permission in their submissiveness to experience their sexuality. Sure, it's, it's, I'm saying it, it's acceptable to do. There's there, right. that's that's the avenue for which you know you're allowed to do it. Right. Okay. And with men, it's it's energized because it's so sure. against what they're trained to do. Sure. So is there truth to the cliche about how a lot of men who are sexually submissive are? titans of industry and all that kind of stuff absolutely but i don't feel like there's a there's a correlation between um like there's like it's a very common thing like oh i have a very high profile job and very stressful and Mm. and i just want to i just want to experience the other side of it in my experience people people who who for whom you know are you know very deeply sexually submissive they're blue collar people with like almost no responsibilities as much as they are, you know, uh, high profile. So it's not a, a seeking for balance. I don't, I don't feel like it is. I feel like the, the, the seeking for balance comes from like wanting to just be accepted and understood, mm. um, far more so than like this power dynamic. And see, I, I have a bit of a, a, you know, that kind of old model of thinking of like biologically men are, you know, are dominant, women are submissive and, you know, because men are more powerful physically and blah, 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 blah. And I feel like they're, I'm not certain how much of that's like old programming from, you know, from just how things that I'd read or how much of it may, may more be that, yes, this is a, you know, that, that men may be stronger physically, but, you know, women have higher constitutions. And so there's, there's an interaction there that has a lot to do with it. Um, and so when you're exploring a power dynamic, it can go either way, depending on the biological component of both parties, mm. you know, um, 
Because certainly, you know, like I can I can kick a lot of men's asses, right? Yeah. And I'm not a big person. And mm-hmm. it's just a that's a, a particular skill set. But I've met plenty of slight men for whom they would stand no chance, even if I had no skills. So I feel like even that biological component really isn't there. Yeah. Um, well, and also the biological component sort of is based on a chimpanzee model of sure. human sexuality. Whereas well, if the you bonobos look at the model. bonobo, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bonobos, yeah. And, and male bonobos are bigger than females, right. but they don't right. dominate females at all. Right. Quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting stuff. I, I, I mean, there's that old cliche, what's that line? Always treat a, a queen like a whore and a whore like a queen. You know, it's sort of... I don't know where that came from. Yeah, I don't know. It's an old one. Um, it's a good one, though. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. My, my own experience is very anecdotal, but it, it does, in my experience, there does seem to be some correlation between, and, and maybe it's just, maybe, I don't know, I don't know how to articulate this, but I think a, a lot of women that I've known who have really stressful lives, their sexual submissiveness is a way to relax. Sure. Like, you know what? For the next hour, I don't want to decide anything. I want to be told what to do and just like, it, it's but do you, but do you think mind that's, it, cleansing. Do you think it's sexual submissive or it's just sex in general? And But they therefore have, you know, that just could be their particular fetish or their fantasy or the thing that they've kind of internalized that, that you know, to experience sexual pleasure is to be on the receiving end and that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to talk to them individually. Because I can tell you that like the more stressed out I get, the more I'm like, I'm going to go masturbate. I need yeah. to figure this out. And and having the permission to have that sexual pleasure. I certainly would rather, when I'm really stressed out, go have a really firm romp in the hay. Certainly. But, you know, I don't feel like the masturbation <laughs> the is firm like... firm romp yeah. in the hay. Yeah, it's a true story. <laughs> or not the hay, or it gets a tree. A or other, you know, Hay yeah. is itchy. You know, there's so many of these sexual cliches that are just don't live up to their billing. Absolutely. Sex in hay, fuck that. Yeah, no, no, I've done absolutely. It. It's horrible. Nope, nope, absolutely. Sex on the beach, who wants sand in their vagina? Fuck no, absolutely no. not. Sex in the shower, oh, come on, it's slippery and everything's hard. Yeah, exactly. You know not what? Not in a good way. Sex in, in ancient ruins, that's the shit. That's oh, what you need to go for. There you go. Well, I, I've, <laughs> I've been there, done that. So I, my best sexual experience in the last year, and, I, and, I, and I, I've had a bunch of them, is that in Iceland, my partner and I um, snuck into the cave um, where, because they filmed a lot of Game of Thrones, in Iceland, right? Yeah. And we snuck into the cave where Egret deflowers Jon Snow. And it was fairly public, right? Like, like it's, you know, it's Iceland, so there's not that, that many people, but this was a fairly heavily touristed area. Yeah. And totally had sex in this cave and almost got busted and, like, and had a, a fucking great time of it. And we're like, we're like I feel like that might actually be, I mean, one of the, one of the better highlights of my life. I'll probably remember that one for a while. <laughs> Uh, but, oh, sex. wait, trying yeah. to, having sex in a cave, also a hard thing to do. Yeah. Well, I had sex in a Mayan ruin yes. in Guatemala once. Yeah. And um, it was inside, like, a chamber. Mm-hmm. And I leaned against the wall, and the back of my shirt was covered with this green slime. Ooh. Yeah, it was really bad. And but it, was it worth never it? washed out. Was it worth it at the time, though? It, not only was it worth it, but I didn't throw away that shirt for years Fuck just because yes. the stain remained. And, yes. You know, it was like a... It's a badge of honor. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I run it up the flagpole. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is, is there anything we haven't covered here? 
<laughs> we, we could probably be talk for, for several hours and, and not breach the surface. I know. Every time, yeah. like, the, the more they keep interviewing me for this documentary and asking me questions, like the more things that I go and immediately go write down and go, oh, I really need to do like a YouTube video about this or I need to write about this or I need mm. to do whatever. Because I feel like I, I barely, barely ever brush the surface on it. Yeah. You know, like uh, about like why people do what they do in regards to their, their kinks and their fetishes and like, you know, what relationships look like. You know, like it's been like an hours talking about polyamory and, and still feel like I never really kind of like I feel like I still 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 could spend more hours actually talking about it what kind of what kind of advice would you give to young men who are perplexed by women and because I get a lot of young Mm -hmm. men asking me for advice on how to deal with women how to deal with sexuality and um I one of the things that I in my own life have found very uh important is to understand the difference between being dominant and being an asshole. Absolutely. Or being dominant and being aggressive. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's an even better way because, to say it. Because because you know when you're when you're one of one of the things that like that that the dominance or you know or aggression or any of these things uh, come you come to the table with if you if you're aggressive you have the immediate consent and approval to to that the answer is going to be yes from the other person, right? I feel like the thing that I would give give us the biggest piece of advice um, is to come to the table with questions instead of demands. Uh, you know, if right. it, the it's not a sign of weakness not to know. It's a sign of absolute strength. Right. To ask to to to, right. to want to know more and to there's this there's this obsession that young men often have that. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they have a sense of validation that has to come from their performance, right? And not just sexual performance, but like a performance in every part of, the, part of their lives. And the truth is, is that inside an intimate relationship, that's not the case, right? Yeah. And the, the better conversation is, okay, so what what does my partner actually need? How am I interfacing with my partner's needs? How do I ask for the things I need and make sure that we're both, we're both doing that in tandem, right? Mm. And... I find that that's the thing that we kind of learn as we get older, you know, of, of how to come in and be like, I'm having a really hard day. I'm really hangry. I'm whatever. And your partner or partners or whatever, jump in and go, I'm going to take care of this food for you because, you know, I can see that's, that's a need you have. Or like you look really stressed and let's, let's go fuck in the backyard or, you know, like any of those things. And we assume that that conversation um, happens automatically, you know, right? And and rather than making it deliberate, or, uh, or even that that conversation's not necessary, that right. you're going to read each other's minds somehow. Absolutely. And and the way that most people interface with sex when they're young is literally to close your eyes, cross your fingers, and hope for the best, mm. right? And the thing is, is that as a guy, you're going to experience sexual pleasure if there's enough friction, for the most part, right? But as a woman, you're not. So. If a guy comes to the table basically saying like, hey, I want to have an amazing sexual experience with you and but I don't really know where to start. Can you teach me how your body works? Right. That's a huge amount of humility that is always really impressive. Right. right? Always really impressive. You know, like I, I I have such high standards for for male partners, mostly because, you know, I'm just I live the kind of life that I do. And I feel like, you know, I have like I have a great A pussy. Thank you very much. You know, and I deserve deserves to be treated well. And even like there, I've never had a partner that I really, really enjoyed who came to me and was like, I know everything. I'm like, no, even if, even if you literally have written a million books on sex, you could not be the expert at my body. Right. right. And I can't be the expert at your body. Right? right. And half the magic is like figuring all those things out. And not just body. 
right. but your mind, your mind, and everything else. Yeah, yeah. and that's and then the the process of developing intimacy is one that you need to come to the table with some humility about. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice. Not easy one, mind you. Well, but, but it's pretty simple. You know, ultimately, it's you know, it's like you and I were talking earlier about travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I, for me, sex is very much like travel. I, the two are very similar. Hand and, in hand. You know, it's all, all I want to do with my life: sex and travel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. exactly. And it's like when I'm with a woman, I, I it's like I'm going to a new country. Mm-hmm. I don't walk into a new country acting like I know everything. What the fuck is that? You right. know, that's a tourist i see myself more as a traveler you know it's like hey i'm here to learn you know and the whole point is i don't know that's why it's interesting you know and and and, and unfortunately people don't come with their own lonely planet guides so (laughs) that's why it's lonely yes that's why it's such a lonely Uh, uh, that's so good (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks for doing this this is uh, i've had a it's been very educational yeah it's awesome a great conversation yeah how do people find you? What's what's your... So the easiest thing to do is I have a portal site, which is alexandrasnow.com, um, which has, you know, the all the various different places that you, you know, you can get information from, you know, in-person sessions to the video production that I do um, to, um, like, my social media and stuff. There's there's no information online right now about my software project, um, but maybe we'll come back when after it launches in a couple of years and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about it then and what I'm trying to do to, to change porn. But it's certainly nothing to, to... There's something interesting to look at right now. Um, but... But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all over, I'm all over various, various different social media, but it's just better to go to alexandrasnow.com and then you can figure out which one floats your boat. <laughs> all right. Thanks. I'm going to go look it up right now. Thanks. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alexandra Snow. Uh, her Twitter handle is Domina Snow at Domina Snow. And she also has a website, dominasnow.com. And of course, alexandrasnow.com, as she said. Uh, thanks for listening to this. Maybe you noticed there were no damn commercials, not a single fucking commercial anywhere except this one, which is a commercial for non-commercial podcasting. Uh, if you'd like to support that, please do through patreon.com and the use of my Amazon affiliate link. I really appreciate all that support. iTunes reviews are also helpful and wonderful to read when I get depressed and feel like my life is worthless. I can read the nice things you've said there and gets me right back in the saddle the intro music is by basin and range the song is called bright side of the sun you can check them out at basinandrange.bandcamp.com there's a reddit conversation happening um i'm gonna i I go on there and respond to people and engage in some conversation when i get a chance so if you're on reddit uh look up tangentially speaking and you'll find a bunch of people there talking about these episodes what they like what they don't like what they hope i'll talk about later somebody had a list of things they want me to talk about on the next roma and uh all three of them are things i'm going to talk about so if you have requests or whatever that's a good place for it if you want a shirt got all those shirts mom sends them out uh she's got uh, tangentially speaking shirts sex at dawn shirts civilized to death shirts whatever they're all there in the garage and mom's happy to send them to you as well as the tangentially reading book which I'm happy to sign, inscribe, I'll write whatever the hell you want me to write, and Mom will send it to you. You can find those at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Just look for the store tab at the top. And if you want to buy anything else from Shore Design T-Shirts, just go to their site, shoredesigntshirts.com, and use the discount code CTD as in civilized to death, and they'll give you 20% off. I know that counts as an ad. It is an ad, but they're not paying me 
to do the ad. They just give me a really good deal on t-shirts and they've been helping out since the very first episode of this podcast. And I'm going to end as always with a song called Smoke Alarm by that great Carsey Blanton. If you ever get a chance to see her live, don't miss it. You can find her information, tour information at carseyblanton.com. She's fantastic. And, uh, she recorded this version of her song Smoke Alarm just for us. I really love this version. All right. Hope everything's going well for you wherever you are. Don't forget to send me those MP3 intros that, you know, tell me where you are, what you're doing. Uh, I'd love to get more of you guys, your voices on this podcast. And it's really cool to have a community like we do. All right. Thanks. Hope everything's great out there. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby It's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground